You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Tomball, Texas. To find out more information about our church, visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org. Please open up in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. That's where we will be this morning. Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Lawson, uh, Lawson Flowers. I'm the student and family minister here at Redeemer. Uh, I'm feeling, getting to fill in for Pastor Jeff this morning as he and his wife are on uh, a trip celebrating their 10-year anniversary. Um, so that's wonderful, and you can uh, thank God with me for, for Pastor Jeff and, and Natalie and their ministry here. Um, as I, I am so very thankful for them. Um, but it's a privilege to be here, and it's a privilege to open, open God's Word as, uh, as always. Uh, it is. And, and uh, we are continuing through Hebrews, our series through Hebrews, and the, the summary of our series, what we've said each week, is looking to Jesus, uh, which is actually a, a quote from Hebrews chapter 12, but I think it's a really good summary of the entire book of, of Hebrews. If you remember even the very first chapter, uh, the, the author of Hebrews starts by saying, long ago God spoke to us in many times in many ways, but in these last times, he's spoken to us by his son, who he appointed the heir of all things. And he just lifts Jesus up as high as he possibly can. And then he just won't quit. It's just like, Jesus, 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 each chapter going through. Um, I think it's so instructive that even in, cha- in the end of chapter 5 and, and the beginning of 6, when he says, we need to move past the elementary principles and, and move into maturity. Um, after he says that, he, he doesn't then stop talking about Jesus and his work. He just talks more about him. He just talks deep, more deeply about his high priestly work. And that's what we're talking about. That's what we've been talking about for the last several chapters. And, and by God's grace, uh, we won't either, just like the author of Hebrews, we won't ever uh, stop talking about Jesus. That's one of the things that I, and I know you do so appreciate about Pastor Jeff is he always brings us back to our Savior, uh, which is a, a, a wonderful uh, and, and really life-giving thing for our church. Um, last week, we, uh, Pastor Jeff specifically looked at how Jesus brings in the new covenant from chapter 8. So the new covenant versus the old covenant. Uh, and he, he talked about how the old covenant is a shadow, or a copy, as chapter 8 says, of the new covenant reality, right? The temple, the sacrificial system, the priests, they're all shadows of the reality that Jesus brings. And we'll continue to look at that old covenant and new covenant relationship this morning as the text fleshes it out. Um, more and more. So, uh, if you're able, as we uh, do each week, would you stand in honor of reading God's Word? And we will read the entirety of chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having been thus made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, 
gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he's a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established, for a will takes effect only at death, since it's not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used for worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with the blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Pray with me. Father, would you open your word to us? We want to hear from you. I have no power to change a heart. I have no power um, to, to even change my own heart. So we need you and we look to you through your word by your spirit this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> Francis Schaeffer, uh, in his little book called True Spirituality, uh, is a late philosopher and, and theologian, uh, talks about two streams of reality that we live in. That these are constantly going on around us, two streams. There's, there's the physical reality, which you can generally see, uh, and there's the, the metaphysical reality that you generally can't see. Okay, there's the natural world, the supernatural world, the tangible, the intangible, the physical, the spiritual. Uh, and of course, there's really only one reality, right? There's only one thing going on, but, but that includes both of these. But I think it's helpful maybe to, to think of them in these two ways, two streams. Now, our world, our Western culture, uh, says that one of these, the physical, is real. That's the real one. And the other, the, the spiritual, is the unreal, right? It's, it's the mythical. 
I think we have a pretty good grasp in our culture on physical reality, right? Um, Tim Keller, uh, who's a pastor in New York, uses the example of a tree falling in a road. Uh, he says if you're in a car and, and a person is, uh, you know, you're driving with a person and y'all are driving uh, and, and you see a tree, that's a big tree falling over in the road, and you say, watch out, there's a tree in the road. And, and they say, the driver says, well, that, that's your truth, but not mine. I don't believe in trees then you're probably going to grab the wheel and swear, you know, try to like keep you from ramming into it, you know, do something. Um, because we know that if we disregard physical reality, there are consequences. Okay? But I think often we don't have a good grasp, and our, our culture certainly doesn't, on spiritual reality. Western cultural, culture has classified spiritual reality as unreal, as mythical. And so we hear all the time, well, that's not your truth. Right? That may, that's great for you, but that's not my truth. Right? People might say, for instance, when, when confronted with a clear teaching on, on judgment, on hell, uh, a biblical teaching, they might say, oh, well, I don't believe in hell. And we're just supposed to leave it at that? Like, you believing it makes it untrue? Is that, is that how it goes? That's, that's, right, if there are these two streams, if they, if they are equally real, that's a foolish position, right? It's foolish just to look at one of them and to disregard the other. And just as uh, disregarding physical reality has consequences, so also disregarding spiritual reality has consequences. Bo both the natural, supernatural, are equally real. Okay? And we'll see in this, this passage some, some uh, really important truths about both these realities of the universe, that both the, the, the physical and the spiritual. Um, and we see that there's two tabernacles here described, okay, two tents. Uh, th these are the, the, one tent is in the, the natural, right, the physical, and one tent is, uh, in, is in the spiritual. And the first is, is the earthly, it's in the, the physical realm. Um, and this is what 9, 1 through 10 is mainly describing. Look at verse 1. Even the first covenant had, a regula had regulations for worship and an earthly place. Of holiness for a tent was prepared. This is the tabernacle of Moses in the Old Testament. Um, so the earthly tabernacle, if you're not familiar, was a tent uh, that was kind of segmented off. So there was uh, there's a courtyard that he doesn't describe, it, and then there's the, kind of the tent, the main tent, uh, and the outer, the first section uh, was called the holy place, right? And this is where the the priests would go um, and kind of do their duties. Uh, the second section, you know, the kind of more inner tent, was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Uh, which held the Ark of the Covenant and, and its contents. And this is where God's presence was, um, and, and the, this was the most holy place. It was the most closed-off place. So priests would go into the first section regularly to, to, you know, put the bread of the presence and light the lamps, you know, all the, the priestly uh, things. But only, only the, the high priest would go into the, the most holy place only once a year uh, and bring blood uh, to atone for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. Now, we're pretty far away uh, from, from physical sacrifices. I don't think you've, you know, sacrificed a sheep lately. I don't think you have. I can't think of a good reason why you should have. Um, if you have, I'd love to talk to you afterwards. That would be, that would be interesting. Um, but, uh, but the original audience, they were very familiar with that. There was still a temple. Like, there were still sacrifices going on that they could see. Uh, we can only imagine it, you know, but, but I think it's good for us, too, because that's, this is what the original audience would have pictured. Uh, I have a friend who's, who has spent extended time in, in Kazakhstan, and, and not just in Kazakhstan, but in a, in a kind of a remote village in Kazakhstan, and where they still, you know, are shepherds and have sheep and goats. And, uh, and, and if you go, if you're planning a vacation, um, if you go to the remote village of Kazakhstan, you, you will likely be an honored guest, and so they will likely kill a sheep there for you and cook it and, 
you know, you can eat it for dinner that night. Um, and, and so my friend described to me basically the, just the horrific sight of seeing a sheep killed, you know, slaughtered right in front of him. Uh, you know, the, the sheep screaming and the violent cutting and holding and blood everywhere, you know. I don't want to make you faint or something. Um, but I think we're used to in a church setting to, you know, sacrifice, talk about sacrifice. But, but I don't know if it hits home for us. I don't know if we feel the reality of it. This was messy, right? This was violent. This is bloody, uh, bloody reality. Um, the, the original audience knew, right? They could, they could see the sights and, and smell, they could smell the smells and they could picture the blood spilling out. Now, so you say, so sacrifice. Uh, you, you say, Lawson, this is stuff from Leviticus. You know, my eyes are already glazing over as they do in my Bible reading plan about this time every year. Um, but give me a minute. It's, it's the beginning of the sermon. Don't be so impatient. Um, why, why should you care about this? Why should you care about this? Well, because um, God is saying something to us today from the Old Testament tabernacle. Okay, look at verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way to the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Okay, so the Holy Spirit indicates, you see that? Indicates to the original hearers, and so indicates to us. He's speaking to us now. Um, that the, 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 the tabernacle and the temple, while they stood, okay, the present age, meaning the age when they presently stood, uh, while they stood, they represented that the way to God was closed. The way into the holy place was closed. It was not yet opened, which means not yet opened. So it means the Holy Spirit planned to open them through Christ, um, which we'll see in a minute. But, but he wants us to pay attention to this arrangement and how, how it was, you know, uh, because, verse 9, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Okay, so God wants you to know that this arrangement, how the tabernacle was and the temple sacrifices, it couldn't perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Right? It couldn't go to the heart of things. Okay, uh, it, it couldn't truly take away sin or the guilt from sin. Okay, this is the, the earthly tabernacle, right? The, the one in the physical realm. And the, the tension is that the most holy place isn't open yet, right? It's, it's closed. It, the, the consciences of the worshippers, they aren't purified. Um, they aren't really made perfect. Even with all the animal sacrifices, all the blood, all the ritual, all the priests, um, they really could only cleanse the body. They could only cleanse the outside. They couldn't get to the inside, to the real heart, to the real guilt and sin. These are shadows, copies. They're temporary uh, setup until the time of Reformation. This is the interim boss or the substitute teacher. Right? It's, it's only for a time until the real comes. Now, so that's the, the, the earthly, the physical. There's another tabernacle. There's a, there's a heavenly tent in this passage. Um, this one isn't in the physical realm, but it's just as real. Remember, they're just as real. Uh, what do we learn about this tent? Uh, we're not going to look at every single verse in, in this uh, kind of second, uh, second three-fourths of the passage, um, but, but we will look at it several. Look at verse 11 with me, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, there it is, not made with hands, that is not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing 
an eternal redemption. So the time of reformation, what, what all of these, this priest, the temple sacrifice, what all that was waiting for uh, to, to go away when this, the real thing came was when Jesus came as our great high priest, right? He entered the heavenly tent, the heavenly tabernacle, right? Now, is this, is this a physical place? Should we think of the physical tabernacle, you know, in, in the heavens that we can't see or something? Um, it says it's not made with hands, not of this creation. So that could mean it's not physical, or it could just mean we didn't make it, right? It's something that God made himself. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know that it, that it matters a whole lot. Uh, but look at verse 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, so that's the body, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So whether it's a physical place or not in the heavens, Jesus went into the real most holy place. Okay, the, the place that the second, uh, the second section of the, that most holy place of the earthly tabernacle, it was a shadow of this most holy place that Jesus entered, the presence of God in heaven. And, and he had to go in with blood, right? Just like the earthly priest had to go in with blood, but, but he needed better blood than bulls and goats. It couldn't purify, right? Um, but the animal sacrifices, they were a, a shadow of the great sacrifice, the only sacrifice that could truly purify our conscience, really cleanse our hearts, really take away our sin, and it was the blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus. He goes in not only as the high priest, but as the sacrifice. He goes in with his own blood. And stop and think about this for a minute. Jesus gives us a clear conscience. Do you have a guilty conscience this morning? We, we all have, have real moral guilt before a holy God. We do, right? Some people think guilt, you shouldn't feel that. You should just feel good vibes. Like, no, there's a real God. We've really wronged him. We have real guilt. There's real moral guilt before a holy God. Have you taken it to the Lord Jesus? Have you taken it to him? You can try to cover it up in a thousand ways, and, and don't we all? Um, try to mask it, try to push it off, try to bury it deep down. But, but the only way to purify your conscience once for all is to come to Jesus, to trust in his sacrifice for you. Look at 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. He, he purifies our consciences. He, he takes away our real moral guilt. He redeems us by dying in our place for our transgressions. This is how he does it. And friend, if you don't, if you don't believe in Jesus in here, just think of it. A clear conscience. What a gift that is. What a gift that would be. And, and as, as a Christian, my brothers and sisters in here, uh, this is part of our inheritance. What a, what, this is amazing. He took our sin and our guilt on himself uh, on the cross, and then he left it in the grave, and he rose victoriously. Okay, we are truly and irreversibly clean in Christ. We don't have to hide anymore. Our guilt and our sin is gone. The, the cross, then, is a place 
where the Holy Spirit, I think, lets us in on what's going on in both streams, in the physical and the spiritual. Okay, the physical is this. Jesus Christ, it is finished, and he breathes his last, and he dies, and his corpse is hanging there, dripping blood uh, in, in Jerusalem. The earth quakes. The sky goes black. The veil of the temple is separating the most holy place from the holy place. It, it, it's torn in two from top to bottom. That's the physical, right? That, that's what happened in history. But, but for the spiritual, look at, look at verse 24. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Okay? Now, I don't know the detailed timeline. You know, That's not my point here to say that exactly that moment Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's also entering heaven. You know, I don't know. I don't think that's the point of the passage. But I think what is clear is that through his sacrifice of himself once in the physical, right, you could have seen it. You, you could have seen it if you were there. Uh, he entered into the holy places in heaven where we can't see as our great high priest to appear before God on our behalf. He took his blood in there for us. The veil of the temple on earth that separated people from God, it tore because the veil in heaven tore, the real veil that separated us from God. The time of reformation had come. The way to God was opened through Christ. As verse 26 says, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. A, uh, this week, a, a Christian musician uh, drummed up a little bit of controversy on Twitter. I don't know if you're on Twitter, uh, but it's one of the social medias these days. And uh, he, he tweeted this. He said, I simply think blood sacrifice is a very limited and less than timely metaphor for what the cross can mean in our culture. Okay? I simply think blood sacrifice is a very limited and less than timely metaphor for what the cross can mean in our culture. Okay, so there's a lot that can be said about that. Musicians are poets, right? They're songwriters. They're always looking for metaphors to get across their, you know, the ideas. And metaphors certainly get overused and certainly get overused in, in uh, Christian songs. But I think it's important to say um, from our passage this morning uh, that, that blood sacrifice isn't actually a metaphor. Like, it's a reality. It's not that the spotless Lamb of God metaphorically died for us. It's that he, he did it in time at a certain fixed moment in history that he died for us. Our whole hope rests on us. Right? The reality of it. That, that the Son of God was executed on a Roman cross uh, in the first century A.D. in Jerusalem on a, one Friday evening, and then that he rose from the dead the, that next Sunday morning? That's not metaphorical. It's historical. It's historical. If it's a metaphor, it's nothing. If it's a metaphor, it deals with my metaphorical sins. I have actual sins I need dealt with. Uh, it's not metaphorical. So if you're here, maybe you're curious about what Christians do actually believe. Maybe you've heard different things. Uh, we, just like we sang, we believe Jesus Christ actually died to, uh, roughly 2,000 years ago. And we believe that he's breathing currently because he rose from the dead. It's not metaphor. It's reality. Now, I can, uh, even though it's, it's not metaphorical, I can certainly uh, sympathize with, with the, the weirdness of 
blood sacrifice to modern people, right? Certainly, it seems kind of pagan. It seems, uh, you know, kind of ritualistic. Like, what is blood? Like, we don't deal with that much. Um, so I think it's a good question. Why blood? Why, why all the sacrifice? Um, I think it is a good question. Why did God command all these sacrifices? The whole sacrificial system, he, he created it, right? Uh, and, and why did he have to shed his own blood for us? I think it's a good question. Um, and I don't know that this is a, be a satisfying answer for, for some of you, but, but this is one of the givens of the universe. It's one of the ways the world is because God made it. Verse 22 says it. Uh, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus 17.11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you for the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood, life blood, the the substance in us that keeps life going, uh, that our hearts keep pumping, is, is the only thing that can purify. It's the only thing that can atone. Blood, blood is significant. I think even in our secular, very secular society, we still can't get away from it. You know, like if you think about the idea of signing something in blood, not that we do that a lot, but, you know, as a schoolboy, maybe you did. Uh, and it, there's something more significant about that than just signing it in ink, right? Or, or you might refer to someone in your family as they share my blood as a way of saying this is significant, right? We, we, we feel that blood is significant. There is significance there, and there is. It's true. Um, an illustration might be might be helpful uh, here. The the Chronicles of Narnia by by C.S. Lewis, some of my favorite books, and especially the 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 first one he wrote, the second one in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, is uh, one of my favorite books of all time. You should read it if you haven't. Um, and, and it's as you probably know, an allegory to the gospel story, right? It's an allegory. Uh, the White Witch is an evil tyrant who rules over Narnia. That makes it always winter, but never Christmas. Uh, and and uh, Aslan, and Pastor uh, Steve told me to say it's Aslan. It's a Turkish word that means lion, and that's true. Um, but we say Aslan because we're in America. Um, Aslan, the great lion. Don't tell him I said that. Uh, the, the, the lion, he's the true ruler of, of the land, right? But he hasn't shown himself in, in Narnia for a while. And the story, of course, follows uh, the four children, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, in their adventures in Narnia through the wardrobe, you know, uh, all of that. And spoiler alert, if you're reading it or something, in the climax of the story, uh, the traitor, Edmund, so one of the children has betrayed the rest of them. Uh, though, though he's with Aslan, he, he's set to die. Okay, the white witch has come and has laid claim to him, uh, and he's going to kill him on the stone table because in Narnia, the deep magic says that that is how traitors are to die. Everyone's, you know, distressed, and, and Aslan kind of tells everyone to step back, and he works out, he, he talks to the witch, and he works out a secret deal with her to save Edmund's life. And he, he sneaks out of camp at night, uh, and he's followed by Susan and, uh, and Lucy, who are kind of watching at a distance, and he goes to the stone table uh, himself, and he gives himself to the witch, right? And it's a, it's a horrible scene. It's, it's horrific, right? She, she and her mob bind him with rope, and, you know, shave his glorious mane on and dance around him and spit on him and kick him. And, and the, the witch, you know, wets her ancient stone knife before killing Aslan with it on the table. Lucy and Susan, you know, they're utterly heartbroken, as is everyone who's ever read the book. You just cry at this point. Um, but in the morning, 
the girls find a wonderful surprise. Okay, Aslan's body's gone, and the stone table is cracked in two. Okay, he's not there, of course, because he's the allegorical character to Jesus, and he's risen. And, and when they see him again, they're, they're overjoyed, of course. The girls are. And, and they ask him, what does this mean? And he says, just in this great quote, it means, said Aslan, that though the witch knew the deep magic, there was a magic deeper still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backward. So why blood? Why sacrifice? This is the deeper magic of the gospel. This is the fabric of the universe that God wove together before time. We wouldn't invent it. <laughs> we couldn't, right? Uh, but as traitors all, we can be thankful for our great high priest, our, our willing victim who committed no treachery, the spotless lamb of God who died for us. How should we respond? How should we respond to this, uh, our great high priest and his work? Two responses from this passage. The first is in verse 14. Um, I'll read the whole verse. Uh, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Pastor Jeff said it so well last week. Living in grace doesn't minimize obedience. It actualizes it. Living in grace doesn't minimize obedience. It actualizes it. We are purified from dead works. Okay, we can't, we can't earn our way to God. We're dead, right? Uh, and we even need to be forgiven for trying to earn our way to God. But once we are purified by his sacrifice, we can now truly serve the living God. We can truly serve him. We can work for his pleasure because we have it fully in Christ. His commands, instead of being a crushing weight, they become our delight. And man, he has work for us to do. Ephesians 2.10, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's got stuff for us to do. He's, he's working in this world through his children. And that's an exciting possibility. Second response is from 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is another of the realities of the universe, right? The, the, the deep magic, if you will, uh, that, that you are appointed to die once and then to face judgment. Death it's a physical reality. You can't deny. One out of one people die. That's the recent statistics. Um, and and they're, they're in the same way, there's a spiritual reality. You will face judgment. You will die. You will face the Lord. You will stand before him. And as surely as that will happen, these verses say Jesus himself will come again. He's coming a second time. He's not coming again to die, though. He, he already did that. He already took care of sin. Um, no, what's he coming to do? He, this time he's coming, verse 28 says, to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So if you're a Christian, are you eagerly waiting for Jesus? I hope so. Do you want to see him? Don't you want to see the one who gave himself for you? 
What a day that will be. And if you aren't a Christian uh, in here, maybe you're not a believer, I just have one question for you. Um, maybe you disagree with much of what I said. Maybe, uh, maybe you've been offended. Maybe you're bored. Maybe you're sleeping. You know, that's fine. Sweet dreams. You know. um, but, but can I just ask you one thing as we close? One thing to consider one question. I, I know you don't believe it yet, but think about this. Don't you wish it were true? Don't you wish it were true? Take, take your doubts, all your doubts and all your objections. But man, we should talk. I love talking about those things with people. Like, let's talk about those things. But just take them to, to the side for a second if you can and consider what Jesus is offering if it were true. Wouldn't it be great if you could truly be forgiven for all that you've done? If you could truly have a clean conscience, wouldn't that be freeing? Wouldn't it be great to know that you're loved like the Bible says you're loved? Tim Keller uses, has this other illustration that I steal all the time because it's wonderful. He says, humans, we want to be two things. We want to be known fully and loved truly, right? We want to be both known and loved. If you have one without the other, it doesn't matter, right? If you're loved, but people don't really know you, that doesn't matter, right? They don't know the real you. You know, that love doesn't fill you up. Um, but if you are, if you're truly known, but then you're not loved, you're rejected. That's everyone's worst, worst nightmare, right? That we'd be truly known and then rejected. Um, but to have both, to be truly known, known, every, they know everything about you, and fully accepted and loved, it's heaven itself, right? And that's what the love of Jesus is for us. He knows you better than you know yourself. He made you, right? He knows you to the depths of your heart, even better than you do. And he loved you enough to die for you, to give up his life for you. If it were true, wouldn't that be freeing? Wouldn't that kind of love be amazing? Wouldn't it be great to know that your life isn't purposeless? It's not just a bunch of atoms that are going to eventually disintegrate into nothing, but instead that you're set free to live an eternally meaningful life, serving the living God? Wouldn't that be a little exciting? I, I think that you have to admit uh, were it true, that would be really good news. And friend, as a Christian minister, I have to end by telling you, it actually is true, right? <laughs> it is true. Jesus invites you. He invites you now to come to him, to repent of your sins, to believe that he lived and died and rose for you. You can join the family today. Pray with me. Thank you for listening. To find out more information about our church, Visit us at makingmuchofjesus.org.